We're going to continue our chronological journey through the Gospels, and we're going to find ourselves in largely in Luke, Mark, and a bit of Matthew today, touching on um, Jesus' beginnings of his Galilean ministry and uh, his today being rejected there in Nazareth. And then moving on from there to call, officially call, four men, two sets of brothers to follow him and to be his disciples and to begin his what would become his home base of operation there in Capernaum on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. But we're going to begin the teaching uh, in Nazareth where we left off last week. We left off with Jesus in Cana of the Galilee, which is north of Nazareth. But there in Cana of Galilee, Jesus performed his second miracle in the Galilee. John tells us that, that it was his second miracle. So he turned water into wine in Cana. And now in Cana of Galilee, we looked at this last week, he healed a nobleman's son, but the actual miracle took place in Capernaum. Where the son was, the father had traveled some 20 to 25 miles to Cana because he had heard that Jesus was there. And he begged for Jesus to come to Capernaum to heal his son. And Jesus kind of shited him for unbelief and then encouraged him to go. Now, your son is well. And that father began his uh, 20 to 25 mile journey back home to Capernaum. And the next day, his servants came and met him and said, your son lives. And he inquired about the hour that his son revived. And they said about the seventh hour yesterday. And the father knew that that was the moment that he was talking with Jesus. And he knew that Jesus had done a great work. So Jesus is going to make Capernaum his home base and Jesus had already touched and influenced that city. Can you imagine? It tells us that the father and his whole household believed in Jesus. So even though Jesus wasn't physically present when the miracle occurred, I can guarantee you that they were sharing about what Jesus did for their family and especially for their son. So Capernaum was primed. For Jesus' coming and for the ministry that would take place in their city. And it's significant as we get into today's teaching. So we're going to begin today in this message that I entitled, The Acceptable Year of the Lord. We're going to see Jesus' rejection at Nazareth by looking at Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30. And then we're going to see those four men called to become fishers of men. And we're going to look at Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20 for that portion of the teaching. And then we're going to see an unclean spirit in Capernaum. And looking again at Luke chapter 4, verses 31 through 37. Peter's mother-in-law is healed. And we'll look at Mark 1, 29 through 31. And many were healed. And we're going to see uh, two of the Gospels in this one. Matthew 8, 16 through 17. And Luke 4, 40 through 41. Uh, just short little segments happening. So uh, a big teaching in our first point. And then we're going to have back-to-back -back short little segments taking place as we look at these other Gospels. John's kind of out of the picture right now. As far as the chronological journey of the gospel, we are relying upon the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, for this teaching today. And their uh, synoptic gospels, they have this similarity. They used to believe that Matthew wrote his gospel and everybody copied Matthew. And lately, it is some of the scholars theorizing that Mark was the first one to come out with the gospel and that Matthew and Luke actually expanded upon the things that Mark wrote. 
But I find it interesting as I was studying, and we're going to touch on Matthew chapter 8. seems a little bit out of order, but our fifth point, if we make it there, Matthew chapter 8. And Mark is still in chapter 1. He's still working his way through the first chapter, and we haven't even got out of that first year of Jesus doing ministry. So pretty interesting that he he really puts a lot into a verse or two, and then he moves the story along quite rapidly. So let's go ahead and get into the teaching. Jesus' rejection at Nazareth. Looking at Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, beginning in verses 16 through 19. Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, verses 16 through 19. So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And his custom was, and he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and he found when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. Verse 18, And the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. So this was the customary reading. If you go to synagogue today, I've not. All right, I've been in one synagogue. That's not true. But um, I've never been to synagogue, never been to the worship service in the synagogue. When I was a, a child, a teenager, um, my friend's father was a janitor at a synagogue, so we used to go clean up after parties and stuff. So I was used to being in a synagogue in Waukegan there, which is now a church. Uh, they moved out of there, and now a church has that location. But the one synagogue I was thinking of was there in Capernaum, in the ruins of Capernaum, sitting there and hearing a teaching by Pastor Phil Ballmeyer on that particular day, and the Lord ministering to us there in the synagogue of Capernaum, which is ruins today, but still what a blessed place to hear the teaching of the Word of God. But they have customary, customary readings on the Sabbath day, and so this was Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, but we notice if we look at Isaiah 61, verse 2, that Jesus stopped short. He just began the very beginning of the verse, but he didn't read the whole thing. And so he stopped short on that day of reading the whole passage. And he did so because the second half of chapter 61, Isaiah 61, verse 2, deals with his second coming. So he just stopped where it was speaking about what would take place during the Lord's first coming. And so we'll look at that second portion of 61 verse 2 in a moment. But I want to look at these things that we find concerning Jesus, just breaking this down. As the Lord said at the beginning, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is a Greek preposition of P. And it deals with the fullness of the Holy Spirit coming upon Jesus. And Luke tells us this in Luke 4, 1. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And so this, in Luke 4, 1, Luke talking about Jesus after he is baptized, being filled with the Spirit, and going into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, having that uh, three major temptations after the 40 days and 40 nights by Satan, Satan departing, being defeated, always will be by Jesus, departing Jesus for a season. But Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, John testified that he didn't know who the Messiah was exactly, but John would say, he who sent me to preach said to me that Upon whom I see the Spirit descend upon, John 1.33, and remaining upon him. And so John saw the Spirit descend upon Jesus after that baptism, as we learned from the four Gospels. But John testifies, not only did I see the Spirit come down, the Spirit remained upon Jesus. And then he would go on to testify that 
Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the Spirit is upon him. The Spirit is remaining upon him. God anointed him. Cryro is the Greek word. It means to pour on, to anoint, and we could say anoint with oil. But here he's anointed to preach the gospel to the poor in this world. And the poor are often neglected in this life, but not with Jesus. Jesus came to preach the gospel. He was anointed by God to preach to the poor. In fact, Jesus would later say from this event in Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. He was also sent. Apostoleo is the Greek word. It means to send forth. Uh, we get the word apostle from, to be sent, to be sent out. He was sent to heal the brokenhearted. And here we find that apostoleo was used to refer to the setting at liberty or the healing of people's emotional state to heal the brokenhearted. Psalm 147.3 says, He heals the brokenhearted. He binds up their wounds. And so we can have... Uh, people who are physically injured, sick, in need of healing, and Jesus will touch the blind, uh, he'll make the, those who cannot hear to be able to hear, and those who cannot speak to be able to speak, um, those who can't walk to be able to walk. But also there's that emotional and spiritual healing that's necessary. Apostoleo, Jesus was sent forth to heal the brokenhearted. He was also sent to proclaim. Caruso is the Greek word that we have. It means to herald, to preach, to proclaim. And he was to set at liberty, proclaim liberty. He was to proclaim, speak forth liberty to the captives and to the blind, the recovery of sight. So in this world, there's many different types of captivity. Some people can be kidnapped. They can be physically captured, uh, be in the captivity of prison or a prisoner of war. But also there's the captivity of one's soul. And I think this is the greater captivity. Colossians 1, 13 and 14 says, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sin. There is this greater captivity of one's soul, the captivity of sin itself, that Jesus came to Caruso to proclaim liberty, freedom to the captives, and also to give physical sight to the blind, but also there's spiritual blindness today. And uh, we see that in our world today, that there are many who are spiritually blind. It's like they look at the events of, that are currently going on in our world and they see an entirely different picture than what we understand. The reason those who are without Christ see an entirely different picture and it should not be for the Christian. The Christians should be looking through the lens of Scripture. It's, it's really called having a biblical worldview. And so you look at the world, you look at the Bible to give you an understanding of what you're seeing in the world, having a biblical worldview. Sadly, in many of our churches, they lack this biblical worldview. They see the events that's going on in the world. They read the word of God and they're not connecting the things together. But we should be able to see the news, uh, some kind of thing pop up on our mobile device, whatever you're using, a newspaper. I've never been a big newspaper reader. But to have an understanding, and thus Wednesday, looking at the prophecy update, looking at Events going on in our world today and lining it up with what the Word of God says will happen in the last days, having that biblical worldview. So spiritual blindness for many can be hard to overcome. But in Acts 26, 18, the mission of the 
proclaiming the gospel. Paul would say we are to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Jesus Christ speaking to Paul at this time. This is the mission to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from Satan to sin, that they would receive the forgiveness of sins and that they would know that they have an inheritance sanctified by faith in me, the work of Jesus Christ, to Caruso proclaim the proclamation. And that's why to this day we are to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, to let them know that there's freedom in Christ Jesus. Next, he is to set at liberty the downtrodden, the crushed. He uses the word again here in Luke's gospel, it's apostoleo. And so that same word, to be sent forth, now it's applied to set at liberty. So in a sense, sent forth to bring freedom to the downtrodden or the crushed. Paul knew this freedom. Paul is amazing when you read the accounts of the Apostle Paul and all that he went through, all the sufferings he went through. But when he was writing the last recorded letter that we have of him to the church of Corinth, he talked a bit about it. He talked a bit about what was taking place in his ministry and life from the world's perspective, and then he gave a glimpse of the spiritual perspective. Second Corinthians 4, 8 through 10 says, We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. That the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our bodies. I was reading that word, perplexed. I am often perplexed by looking at this world. But I'm not in despair. I trust Jesus. I've always trusted in the Lord to bring me through the troubles of this life. And he has, for 61 plus years, got me this far. I'm not going to abandon Jesus now. So, yeah, we can be hard-pressed, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. That the life of Jesus would shine through our lives, be manifested in our lives. And then he finishes out to Caruso again. He uses that Greek word Caruso to proclaim, to preach, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. So this acceptable, dektos is the Greek word, it is a messianic sense of Isaiah 61, where it's talking about the messianic age, that this was the time of the coming of the Messiah. He was sent to announce that the Messiah, I am the Messiah. He was introducing himself as the Messiah, that God's prophetic timetable, salvation would soon be available because of the work of Jesus upon the cross. When we look at it from the perspective of the Gospels, Jesus in Luke chapter 4, he had a couple of years before the cross at this point. But salvation had arrived. Jesus was there. So the second half of second... Uh, I Wait a minute. <laughs> Not the second half yet. Second Corinthians 2 Corinthians 2.6 says, and he's actually, Paul, quoting Isaiah 49.8. I got ahead of my notes. 2 Corinthians 6.2. So in Luke 4:19 to preach the acceptable year of the Lord Paul would quote from Isaiah 49:8 in 2 Corinthians 6:2 saying in an acceptable time I have heard you in the day of salvation I have helped you now is the accepted time behold now is the day of salvation Paul would say this is it this is the opportunity of salvation that God has afforded 
for the world through the work of Jesus upon the cross. So back in Luke 4, verses 20 through 22, Jesus then closed the book. You realize he, he closed the scroll. So don't think of book like we have. But he closed it prematurely. He didn't even finish the second verse. He gave it back to the attendants and sat down. And this is something that I, the older I get, maybe I prefer even more. But the teacher would sit, the students would stand. Probably knowing that it's harder to fall asleep during a teaching if you're standing. If you do fall asleep, it will be very embarrassing. So he sat down. All eyes were upon him, verse 20, because they realized that he was getting ready to expound upon what he had just read. In verse 21, he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at his gracious words, which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? So Jesus did not read Isaiah 61, verses 2 and 3. The whole paragraph goes from Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. So we pick up to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then it goes on to say, And the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes and the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planning of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Jesus stopped short because he was talking about the work of his first coming. And the continuation of that section of scripture speaks about the work of his second coming. And so he stopped short of talking about that. Now today we can read that portion, the day of vengeance of our God, that God is going to judge this world one day. But for the believers, he's got to bring comfort to those who mourn. He's got to console them in Zion, in Jerusalem. He's got to give them beauty for ashes, oil for joy of mourning, garments of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that we could be called the trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that God may be glorified. We're looking forward to the coming of Jesus the second time. But they could not get past the fact that they knew, or at least they thought they knew, Jesus' family. So they couldn't get past the fact, it's like his gracious words, this is the carpenter's son? In John 6, 42, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it that he says, I have come down from heaven? They, they couldn't get past knowing his family. Jesus was raised in Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem. So they couldn't get past this. They heard the words. They even announced that his words were gracious. Yet this is how they would respond to Jesus' next words, verses 23 through 27. Jesus said to them, You will surely say this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. And then he said, Surely I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when heaven was shut up for three years and six months. And there was a great famine throughout all the land. And to none of them was Elijah sent, except for a widow, a woman who was a widow, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Verse 27, many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elijah and the prophet. And none of them was cleansed except Naaman, the Syrian. And so Jesus knew the Nazarenes would one day ask him, the works that you're doing over in Capernaum, do those works here in our city. And yet Jesus couldn't do those works there because of their unbelief. 
in Matthew 13, 58, it says, Now he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. That's talking about a different city, a different time. But the same is true. If there's unbelief, then the Lord can work, of course. The Lord can do anything. But the Lord often works as he's igniting our faith in Christ. He works in our lives with the faith that we have toward God and that which we understand. And he meets out the work that he does based off of the faith that we have in him. For Nazareth would be like the days of Elijah when there was a drought proclaimed by Elijah. It didn't rain for three years and six months. And he went to a Gentile woman and asked her for food. She had hardly anything. In fact, the Bible tells us in the Old Testament that all she had was enough for that day. And her mind was, I'm going to feed myself and my son, and then we're going to die. And Elijah said, can I have some of your food? Maybe she just thought, why not? We're dying today anyways, or after this time. We're about ready to starve to death. It, it means nothing to us in the sense of, there's no more means of food for us, but she shared and she never ran out because she was willing to share with the prophet. She was given a son. The son would die and the prophet Elijah would do a great work over the son, bring him back to life. But the point he's making is that there are a lot of people in Israel, Jewish people in Israel during those days, but Elijah ministered to a Gentile woman and her son. Elijah, though there were many leopards in his day, he was the prophet that followed after Elijah. Elijah, he was his assistant. And then when Elijah went to heaven, Elijah took over his ministry, had a double portion of that ministry as well. And over in Syria... And the Bible tells us in 2 Kings chapter 5 that there was an Israeli girl that was a captive. And she was serving in the household of the general of the Syrian king. Now this general had leprosy. And the Israeli girl told the general's wife, whom she was serving, saying, You know, there is a prophet in Israel who can heal Naaman of his leprosy. Isn't it amazing? This is a, a captive slave, probably a little girl in um, her teens. And yet she has more faith in the prophet in Israel than the Israelis who lived in Israel at that time and the work that God could do through Elijah. And so Naaman told this to the king. The king sent Naaman down with a lot of gifts and said, go speak to this prophet. They actually went to Israel's king first. And the Israel's king said, who am I that, you know, I can't heal this man. And they ended up at Elijah's house and Naaman ended up there and Elijah wouldn't even come out. He just said, go tell Naaman to go to the Jordan, dip yourself seven times. You'll be completely healed. Now, Naaman understood what Lily and I saw when we went to Israel. The Jordan River is dirty. <laughs> And Naaman testifies, like, there's a lot cleaner rivers in our own country. Can I go wash there? But he wasn't told to go to his own country to wash. He was told to go to the mucky, dirty water of the Jordan. So I kind of understand that better, having seen the Jordan and baptizing those and being baptized in the Jordan myself. That was pretty murky and dark water there. That flowed through the Jordan. So I'm assuming it did at that time as well. But his servant said, look, Naaman, if he would have told you to do great things, like go slay the seven-headed dragon, you would have done it. But he told you to do a simple thing. Go dip seven times in the Jordan. So reluctantly, he did. And when he came back, he declared, 2 Kings 5.15, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. So, all those in the synagogue, verse 28, when they heard these things, through 30, when they heard these things, 
They were filled with wrath. They rose up, thrust him out of the city. They led him to the brow of the hill which their city is built on, that they might throw him over the cliff. And then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. So being reminded that God helped two Gentiles rather than helping the Jewish people in Israel infuriated the Nazarenes. And they actually attempted to throw Jesus off the side of a cliff. They wanted him dead, but they could not do this. This is a miracle in itself. And and Jesus would do this several times as we read through the Gospels. They would pick up stones to stone him, but never stone him. And I believe there's a great reason why that did not happen. But even the throwing of the cliff, they were not able to supersede the plan of God. This is an attempt by Satan to supersede the plan of God through the people of Nazareth, but they could not do it because Jesus's hour had not yet come. Jesus would not be prematurely thrown off a cliff, stoned by the Jews, because it was on a cross that Jesus was to die for the sin of the world. But unbelief limited God's hand in their lives. And I ask the question, has unbelief limited God's work in your own life or in the life of this church? So it goes from there, and we pick up in Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. And he calls two sets of brothers to become fishermen. Fisher of men, I should say that right. And he walked by the Sea of Galilee. And and by the way, from Nazareth, you can look across the Sea of Galilee. You can see uh, across the sea. You can look up on a clear day. It's like from here. If anybody wants to try it, I'll, I'll let you do it. But I'll put you to work when you go up the radio tower 70 feet. There's some things we could do while we are up there. But if you want to climb, you can see Lake Michigan on a clear day from the top of the radio tower, even though it's several miles away. So he's walking by the Sea of Galilee, which is really not that far away from where he is at in Nazareth. And he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net. And into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said, come after me and I will make you become fishers of men. And he immediately they left their nets and followed him. And he went a little further from there. He saw James, the son of Zebedee and John, his brother. They were also in a boat mending their nets. So Peter and Andrew were fishing. John and James were mending their nets. But he also called out to them, verse 20, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went out after him. So he called them to become fishers of men. Jesus had already connected with, in John's gospel, he's met John, the apostle, would become the apostle, Andrew, Peter, uh, Philip, Nathaniel. But here he officially calls them to be his disciples, to follow him. And though there were many followers of Jesus Christ, actually, we go through the Gospels, there were many disciples. At one point, he sends forth 70 out, two by two, to be um, sent by him on a short-term missionary journey. But there were only 12 that he called to be his disciples, only 12 that would become his apostles in that proper sense. In Luke 10:1, it says, After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them out two by two. So there were many disciples, but only 12 that he called to be his disciples that would be with him in and out of ministry. And at some point, Peter, Andrew, James, John, they had met Jesus when he was baptized there in the Jordan. And the day after, they began to follow Jesus. But at some point, they had returned back to their occupation. They were fishing or mending their nets when Jesus came up to them. And he called them out, and immediately they left their nets and followed him. Mark used the word immediately. He likes to use the word immediately. In fact, Mark would use it in his Gospels, according to the New New King James Version, 36 times. 36 times, Mark gives us this sense of a rapidly moving story. 
We compare it to the other Gospels. The word immediately is only used 19 times in Matthew, 18 times by Luke, and only 7 times by John. Therefore, Mark is moving along the storyline. Remember, we're still in Mark chapter 1, and we're already touching uh, Matthew chapter 8. But Peter and Andrew were first to be officially called as Jesus' disciples, James and John following after him. And I want us to notice that they were all busy with their occupation. They were fishing. They were doing what they did. By occupation, they were fishermen. And Jesus called them to become fishers of men. So I think it's important for us to be busy in the work that God gives us on this earth. It could be a secular job, but to be busy with that work that he gives us Proverbs 22:29 says, Do you see a man who excels in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before the unknown men. And so to be busy, occupy ourselves with the work that the Lord gives us for each day that he gives us. And I believe God is able to use those things. He calls them to become. He says, I will make you become fishers of men. So fishermen, they were... I envision that they were a pretty tough class of uh, men to go out on the Sea of Galilee to get up early, to catch fish, sometimes fishing all night and sometimes toiling all night without uh, catching anything. I would assume that they were a special class of people, the hardworking men, and such men were the ones that Jesus called to come alongside and to serve him, some of the first that he called. He said, first of all, to follow me and to be an effective fisher of men, we have to keep our eyes on Jesus. Jesus said, follow me. It means that we need to become unashamed followers of Jesus Christ. In Luke 9:23, Jesus said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Take up the cross daily, every day. I live for Christ. You should as well. He said, I will make you become fishers of men. You know, when you talk about fishing, anyone can get lucky and catch a fish if they go fishing. We're in Arkansas once when I was a kid. They didn't have enough fishing poles to go around, but I got a turn at the fishing pole. Everybody was fishing where my dad said you should fish to catch fish in a nice shady part of this lake. But I didn't want to be by everybody else. So I went off a distance in the hot sunshine, and I sat down and began fishing there. My dad was telling me that you're never going to catch a fish there. It's, it's noon, it's hot, there's no shade. It's not going to work. Guess what I caught? Guess who took my fishing pole away after I caught the fish? Guess who was fishing in my spot after I caught the fish? Anybody can get lucky. There was no other fish caught that day. Anybody can get lucky to catch a fish. But to become a good fisher man or woman, it takes practice. It takes skill. You need to learn the nature of the fish. My dad was correct. It was an oddity that I caught a fish in a very heated lake at that hour of the day. Learn the nature of the fish. You have to become crafty, cunning. Learn the method of becoming a fisher of men. And Paul did this in 1 Corinthians. He talked about, he made himself as all men. To the free, I became as free. To the slaves, I became as slaves. To the Jews, I was as Jews. To the Gentiles, I was as those who are without the law. 1 Corinthians 9, picking up in verse 21, he said there that to those who are without the law, as without the law, not being without the law toward God, but under the law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became as the weak, to the win the weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. You have to learn the nature of people to become a good fisher of men. And sometimes it's being crafty and cunning. Second Corinthians twelve sixteen, Paul wasn't ashamed to say that I did not burden you, nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you by cunning. 
Paul said he was he learned. And I think as you witness, you share the gospel, you learn when it's time to say certain things, when it's time to not speak. Sometimes remaining silent is better than, as the Bible says, opening your mouth and let everybody know that you're full anyways. But um, learning how and when to speak can be also as important when witnessing to others. Now, I put in our notes, I put Luke 5, 1 through 11. We're going to come back to this. Luke tells us of Jesus coming to Peter, James, John again when they're in the boat. I believe that Luke 5, 1 through 11 is a confirmation of their calling. So I believe they're two separate events. Some put these all together as one event, but I believe it was a further confirmation of their calling. So we'll look at that in a few weeks. But only Jesus, know this, only Jesus is able to make us fishers of men. Now I knew I'd be in trouble when I got into this teaching today. Five points. Who would think that a pastor could ever get through this many points going through? But we're going to do one more for the day, and we'll pick up uh, next week in points four and five, which will then become points one and two for next week's teaching. I'll figure it out. Better to have too much than not enough. So he makes it to Capernaum. We're going to look at Luke 4 for this text. But we also find it in Mark 1, verses 21 through 28. But from Luke's gospel, picking up a chapter 4, verses 31 and 32, he went down to Capernaum. Now, he went down to Capernaum. He's traveling north. We would say he went up to Capernaum, but he's traveling away from Jerusalem. And in the Bible, just get it in your minds, you travel away from Jerusalem, you're always traveling down. You travel towards Jerusalem, you're always traveling up. So in our Western mindset, it's backwards, but Scripture's got it correct from their mindset. He went down to Capernaum. A city of the Galilee was teaching them on the Sabbaths. So Sabbaths, plural, several Sabbaths, he was there. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with authority. So there in Capernaum, the hometown of Peter and Andrew, there on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus for several Sabbaths taught in their synagogue. The people were amazed by his words. He taught as them, as though he had authority. He did have authority. He was the Son of God. No, duh, the kids might say. Matthew 7:29 For he taught them as one having authority not as the scribes so the scribes would often reference someone else they would often say rabbi so and so would say they never taught with authority they were always leaning on someone else Jesus taught with authority who would know his father's word better than the son of god himself in John 7, 45 and 46, then the officers came to the chief priests, the Pharisees, and said, they said to the officers, why have you not brought him? They were charged to arrest Jesus. They came back without Jesus when they were challenged. Why didn't you arrest Jesus? They said, John 7, 46, no man ever spoke like this man. They couldn't arrest Jesus. So now in the synagogue, verse 33 through 37, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice saying, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him and said, be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him in their midst, he th- the demon threw the man down. The demon came out of the man, did not hurt the man. In verse 36, then they were all amazed and spoke among themselves, saying, What word is this? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits. And they came out, and a report about him went out into every place in the res- re- surrounding region. For weeks, Jesus had been teaching in the synagogue. 
several Sabbaths, they were amazed at his gracious words. Just like in Nazareth, they were amazed at his gracious words, but unbelief caused Jesus to do no mighty work there. In fact, there in Nazareth, they wanted to put Jesus to death because he claimed to be the Son of God. But in Capernaum, they were not only amazed at his words, but they saw that there was power there. No man had ever spoke like this man had before. And now this demonic man began to proclaim, the demon speaking, we know who you are, that you are the Holy Son of God. But Jesus prevented him from speaking. Jesus always prevented demons from testifying. Even though we read about it several times in the gospel, Jesus always said, nope, stop it. Don't tell, don't tell people who I am. And I believe that the reason why Jesus did not allow the demons to testify of him, even though the demons knew that he was the son of God, they were not reliable witnesses. If they proclaimed the truth of Jesus, which they did, he is the Holy One of God. That was the truth. They are not reliable witnesses. They have some other motive at play if they are to testify of Jesus. And yet, Jesus spoke a word. He cast the demon out of this man without harming the man. And the people saw what had taken place. And then they heard and they testified the wonderful things that Jesus was doing in their midst. In Mark 1.45, speaking of another event, but another man who was healed by Jesus, when he was told not to proclaim what had happened to him, he went out and began to proclaim it freely to spread the matter so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city but was outside in deserted places, and they came to him from every direction. So this is beginning the year of what would become the year of popularity. And so now uh, people are realizing what Jesus can do. I ask the question, are we willing to share with others about the authority and power of Jesus Christ? All he had to do is speak the word, and this man was healed. It's through Jesus' work on the cross that he offers salvation to us today. And there's a, a favorite verse. I uh, used it, and I always fall back on it. And I have, I say, uh, probably around 23 or 24 years old. It became a favorite verse for me. First uh, Peter 5, 7. Cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. My neighbor the other day caught me outside, and she has a couple of my booklets. I think the last ones, the blessings of the Beatitudes. have to work on that and get those printed again. But she had someone, uh, a mother passed away, and she wanted to give my booklet to this daughter who lost her mom. And the mom's favorite passage of Scripture was the Beatitudes. And, and she's had the booklets for probably a month or more, but... She caught me outside and said, would you autograph them? Now, when I was in the band, I liked to give autographs, but I, I get kind of weird signing books, but I, I signed it. But I wrote out 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. In Nazareth, they did not believe, and Jesus could do no mighty works there. In fact, they rejected Jesus. And wanted to put him to death. In Capernaum, they heard his gracious words and believed. And Jesus would do great works in that city, as we will see as we get through the Gospels. So where are we today? And the Bible tells us, we back up one verse, 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, verse 7, casting all your cares upon him because he cares for you. Are we more like those in Nazareth? I can't believe that. Or are we more like those in Capernaum? It's like, wow, I think I can believe that. It could be that the Lord will base the work that he does in your life based off the position of your faith. 
I often, and I'll just tell you this, I often feel like the father who came to Jesus and said, your son is made whole. If you believe, he'll be made well. And the father returned to Jesus saying, I believe, help me in my unbelief. Sometimes I'm kind of in between the two. Lord, I believe, but that unbelief is just nagging on me. Maybe that's where you're at today. Whatever the issue might be, whatever you're desiring the Lord to do, the work in your life, maybe all you need to do is come down and pray where you're at, come down to the prayer benches, kneel down and pray, and just merely say, I believe, Lord, help me in my unbelief. And then just pour out your heart toward the Lord, casting all your cares upon him because he cares for you. Know this as we go to a time of worship, that Jesus cares for you. Sometimes for us to see him do a work in our life, we need to humble ourselves before the Lord. Humility means in the Greek, it talks about falling prostrate before the Lord, face down before the Lord. That's what the word means. Sometimes it's a matter of just humbling ourselves before the Lord and pouring our hearts out to the Lord to see him do a work in our lives. And sometimes in the process of that, we might cry out, Lord, I believe Please help me with my unbelief. Wherever you find yourself today, please cry out to Jesus. He's able to heal and to save. As Pastor Kevin comes down, as we prepare for worship, let's close out in prayer and stand together. And we'll close out in one last song. And Father, we pray that you would work in our midst this day as we, Lord, just desire to see you do a work in our hearts. Lord, truly come and fill this place. And this hour, Lord, we pray that you'd work in our hearts, even now, those things that you are speaking to us. Help us to surrender ourselves to your will. At this hour, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.